when she was young, her mother took her to the mikvah with her. And she comments there, she reflects, she says, this was always a private matter, but my parents were so worried that maybe they wouldn't even be around to raise me when I'm older. They wanted to make sure that I see and know about this mitzvah. there. I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. Today's episode is dedicated in honor of the Rafua Shalema of Chava Gutta Bas Henyachasya. If you would like to sponsor an episode of the podcast, in honor of a birthday, yard site, Rafua Shalema, or just because you love Human and Holy, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com. All the links are in the show notes. Today, we are going to hear from Chasi Rifkin, who is the Director of Operations at Mikvah.org, which is an organization dedicated to bringing awareness and a deeper understanding of the mitzvah of mikvah through online courses, podcasts, and dozens of resources that help support people in their observance of and connection to this precious mitzvah. I can't even enumerate all of their work in this short introduction, but I highly recommend that if you are looking for any sort of resources that are adjacent to the mitzvah of mikvah, directly connected, Jewish law, inspiration, all of it, check out their website, mikvah.org. You could also find their podcasts on all podcast streaming platforms. They have so much good stuff to just help support you in connecting to mikvah. Mikvah is one of the most central mitzvahs in Jewish life. But for a while, for generations, it was barely spoken about. Today, with Chasi, we are going to discuss what initiated Mikvah's revival in the public sphere. How can we educate our children about it so the concept is natural to them as they age? And how can we in our own lives, navigate the practical struggles that come up when observing the details of the process of mikvah. And how can we support each other, friends, community members, neighbors, fellow Jewish women, in honoring and celebrating this sacred mitzvah? My name is Chasi Rifkin. And I am first and foremost a wife and mother of a beautiful family. Baruch Hashem, we are blessed with eight children. I grew up on Shluchos in Houston, Texas. And so Shluchos is something that's deeply embedded in my bones. And what else about me? <laughs> well, as a Kaila wife, I kind of took a job at Mikvah.org out of convenience. It was local to the Crown Heights community. And after I moved out a few years later, just a series of life events. They were looking for someone to work remotely. It was a good project. I took it on. It was very part-time work, which fit really well with my role as wife and mother and other side jobs. 
that's evolved over the years, and I'm currently Director of Operations at Mikvah.org, which was also known as Mifsa Tarsa Mishpacha. And that's it. Nice. Literally the powerhouse behind Mikvah.org. That is seriously like spearheaded taking it to the next level, especially through the internet and giving people so many resources for the mitzvah of Taras Mishpacha. I just want to say something important you left out of your bio is that you're my aunt. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And I'm an avid follower of the Human and Holy Podcast from day one. <laughs> Thank or you. Or back when it was the Tanya Project. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us a little bit about what mikvah.org does. Okay, so as you mentioned, like, you know, the past few years is kind of blown up as far as what current technology is. But when the Rebbe began Mifta Tarsa Mishpacha, it began in 1975 in Tavshin Lamed when the Rebbe started talking about this Mifta publicly. From the very beginning, the Rebbe said something about Isfram brochures as like a way to publicize this mitzvah. So back in those days, that was the primary medium. And so for many, many years, Mikvah.org, which was known as Mifta Tarsa Mishpacha, was focused on print media. So we have books and publications and checklists and brochures. And when I did the remote projects, I was doing updates on those type of things. But it all preceded me by many years with, you know, I'm on giant shoulders, so to speak, with the woman who founded this organization right away when the Rebbe made a call to action in Tavshalam and Hay. So Rebetzin Altine, Mrs. Chaisar Zarchi, at some point Rebetzin Hecht as well, Mrs. Crandy Klein. There are many women before me that were very involved in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. I began working there in the beginning of 2000, you know, Samach Pays, those years. But then, yes, as technology moves and how do we reach people, it's not necessarily right now through print media. And the website, I think the Mikvah.org website is actually one of the earlier Chabad websites. And it's been around for probably 20 years or more. So it's been around for mm-hmm. a while. But we've increased a lot in podcasts and in online classes. I guess that's the silver lining of COVID and social media. So now it's become more of a household name, but it's definitely been an active organization for many, many years. Mm. The fact that the Rebbe even spearheaded this concept of creating print media around the mitzvah of Taras Mishpacha is so huge because if you look at the mitzvah historically, it was something that was just passed down from mother to daughter in private homes and not something that was being shared in this public way. So I would love if you could give some historical context to how the Rebbe introduced publicizing this and printing books about it and printing brochures, et cetera. Right. Okay. There's like so much. So we'll start from the beginning. The first okay. time <laughs> the first time that I have on record in the research I've done is that was Yud Zayin Tamas 5735, Tavshin Lamed Hay. The Rebbe referred to Taras Mashbacha at a Fabringen. The Rebbe connected it briefly. It was like a slight mention. It connected with Kashras. And the Rebbe was talking about the effects that Kashras and Taras Mashbacha have on the spiritual health of our children. And that's why it's so important to educate everyone around us in this matter because it's the health of the Jewish neshama. You know, the Rebbe was saying it's in America and we must take care of the spiritual health of the neshamas around us. And that's why we need to focus on kashras and taras mishpacha. But it was a brief mention. It wasn't in depth. A few weeks later, again, the Rebbe brought it up in connection to Gula saying that children being born, children being born with this mitzvah is what's going to bring to the Gula. So it became, again, it was like another step. But then it was, you know, it takes time when we as Chassidim are, I guess, are sitting there to listen and say, oh, we need to do something about this. A few weeks later, it was brought up again on Rish Chedesh Elul. 
the Rebbe then referred to it as a mifza, and that's when it became one of the ten miftzayim. When we talk about the ten mitzvah campaigns that the Rebbe encouraged his chassidim to go around and spread in a more official capacity, it was in Elul of that year. So actually, you know, in Tavshin Pei five seven eighty, which is about three years ago. It was 45 years since 1975, right? So that's when we did a short retrospective. It's on our website if someone wants to hear the full history. I'm not going to go into all of that on repeat here. It's called a retrospective on Mifta Tarsimah and it goes through all the details of different things that were done over these 45 years. So the Rebbe kept on bringing up Tars Meshpacha like several times over the next few months. If someone wants to look them inside, you know, it's always nice to see things in context. It is in Chelek Yud Gimel of the Kotesichais, volume 13 of the Rebbe Sichais. And I guess, you know, the Rebbe spoke about these things publicly, and the Rebbe must have gotten questions about why Tars Meshpacha, which is a private matter, is being discussed publicly. How can that be Tznias? So... In Yotas Kislev, Tavshalam Vav, so it's already like half a year since the Rebbe first mentioned it, the Rebbe responded publicly in a sicha. And I guess this is where we can like begin to think about Mr. Tarasa as private, but not secret. Sacred, but not secret. The fact that there's privacy around it, but it shouldn't be a secret. So the Rebbe's perspective that he said in Yotas Kislev, Tavshalam Vav, is that Mr. Tarasa needs to be a household term. It wasn't called mikvah. It was called tars mishpacha, the, the sanctity of the family. That's what was public. And the Rebbe said that children in America today are in secular schools. They're receiving a full education beyond anything you're going to be exposing them to about Jewish approach to intimacy, to marriage, to family purity. And that's why we have an achrayas. We have a responsibility to talk about it. I was recently reading, have you seen the new book, The Queen of Cleveland, about Rebbe and Kazan? No. So for me, the book is interesting. I know that it follows our family history. So as I'm reading about her history, I know that our grandparents were in the same path. Like, you know, they went to Tashkent and then they went out with the caravans with Polish passports and they went to Pucking and Mamersi. All those things I heard as a child, I hear it in detail through Shola's voice. So she talks about how when she was young, her mother took her to the mikvah with her. And she comments there, she reflects, she says, this was always a private matter, but my parents were so worried that maybe they wouldn't even be around to raise me when I'm older. They wanted to make sure that I see and know about this mitzvah so that when I'm older and if they're not around, I will be able to follow up on it and learn about it. If you think about it, it's like so incredibly powerful Baruch Hashem, we're not today in a stage where we all have to worry that we're not going to be around for our children's adulthood. But there are elements of, we don't know which path life brings them. They should just know about the mitzvah. There's still an element of us wanting to make sure that our children are aware of this. But when the Rebbe was talking about it, though, in this Fabringen, he wasn't necessarily talking about our own children. He was talking about outreach. Like he said, you know, the children in the secular schools are being exposed to everything. So therefore we need to teach them about mikvah so that they know about that too. And that could definitely be true that if they weren't going to hear about it from our perspective of outreach, they wouldn't hear about it at all. So it's a discussion. It's a conversation that nowadays, it's so many years later, our children are just as exposed as children were in Tafshalamid Hay in secular schools. When the Rebbe talked about mm-hmm. in secular schools, he wasn't necessarily saying that all of us need to run home and tell our children right away that our children were exposed. It's, I guess it's a conversation that may not, everyone may not agree with me, but at this point, this many years later, our children with all the 
wonderful technology that has made, you know, that you had said, oh, wow, mikvah.org is online, it's on podcasts, etc. It also means our children are hearing lots of things from other sources. And that's why it ends up becoming more of a responsibility for us as parents to be giving that information. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also, just like that story of the young girl being brought to mikvah, even if it doesn't pan out in that way in today's day and age, but it's just embedding in a young mind that this is part of the fabric of life. It's like making it seem natural as opposed to a surprise. Right. So, you know, it was interesting. There was certain key lines in the Sikha that stuck out at me a few years later in Yud Zayn Siv and Tavshin Mem, where the Rebbe said again about, you know, talking to girls about the mitzvah of mikvah and that it should be name dropped, just like you talk about Shabbos or Chala or later topics. This should be name dropped, you know, the mitzvah family purity. You know, we have stories. I don't know the details of it exactly, but when we talked about the Temif Tzayim, with Tzivz Hashem, they wanted to call it something else, and the Rebbe called it family purity. Like, we're not going to gloss over it. It's going to be one of the mitzvahs that are named. But the Rebbe said that it was the woman's responsibility to do it. The Rebbe said the rabbi in Shul can't say all the details of the law, but he should be saying that there's a concept of family purity. And not just that he could say it in Shul. He says they're not going to say it by themselves. The woman in the community needs to make sure that the rabbis are doing this. Make sure, you know, through their sisterhoods, through their auxiliaries. I guess in those days, in the 70s, it was a big deal for all the shuls to have a sisterhood. So the sisterhoods <laughs> should make sure that the rabbis of the shul say it in the pulpit. Even if they might feel a little bit uncomfortable, they don't need to go through all the details, but they need to say the name. They need to say mm. family purity, that it's the cornerstone of Judaism, and that it should be said in public spaces. So then people can then be directed to resources for the details. We said before about how there's so much available now for our children that they may get exposed to things before we get a chance to talk to them. We really want them to hear about this mitzvah, which is not just the rules of mikvah. It's also we're talking about the encompassing of what does taras hamishpacha mean? What does purity of the family mean? So that includes intimacy. It includes your shalom bias and your marriage and the interactions between husband and wife. It includes much more than the laws of like nida and preparation for immersion and immersing, right? We're talking about much more than that. And so a few years ago, we did do an extensive educational series for parents on how to talk to children, because it's not something that happens in, it's not a, oh yeah, okay, I had this conversation, and I'm done with it. No, it starts from a young age, teaching our children about their bodies, teaching them about body safety, and then slowly, like, answering their questions naturally that they're honestly going to have when they see their mother or the people around them going through pregnancy and childbirth. They're going to have questions, and so being able to answer them in a matter-of-fact away, giving them the perspective of Yiddishkeit, of Judaism, as that marriage is a holy thing. It needs to come from us. So again, it's beyond the scope of our conversation, but I want to let people know that if they go to mikvah.org forward slash audio or search for us at any podcast platform, we have a lot, like at least 10 or 12 podcasts about this. They're called Conversations with Our Children, Conversations with Our Bachrim. And there's also a few on body safety. I would say probably 10 or 12. So obviously 20 hours Mm. of talking about this, we're not going to get it all in here. But it's a multifaceted, it's a nuanced conversation. But hearing about it, it doesn't give you all the answers. It doesn't give you all the sentences you're telling your child. It gives you all the perspective to think about that you could then have a proper conversation with your child. Mm. I really like that you're deducing from the Rebbe's words on teaching about Taras Meshbacha and teaching about family purity and mikvah to young children in public schools who were exposed. 
is now being applied to our own young people who are extremely exposed. Because even if the Rebbe didn't explicitly say that then, I appreciate that like the mitzvah of Tarasim Shwacha is expanding to mean not only us sharing it with other people, not only us seeing it as something that like needs to be spoken about that is out in the open, but also as something that we share with our children, which is so interesting to me because as someone who is post Rebbe, like I live in a post Rebbe world and was born after Gimel Tamas, it's almost obvious to me. Like I can't even imagine a time when like mikvah was hush hush and secret. <laughs> right. But I can see how radical it was at the time and how we can still deduce lessons from it that are radical now. Right. Well, we see how, you know, if the Rebbe addressed it in the Fabringen, it was obvious people were selling him like, how can the Rebbe be talking about Taras Meshbach at Fabringen? Right. Because the Rebbe had already gave you like at least five or six or seven instances that the Rebbe spoke about it before Yotas Kislev Lamedvav, where he said, mm-hmm. it needs to be said publicly. And he's like, for answering, he's answering why it needs to be this way. And not only that he needed to say it publicly, but that he was telling other people that they needed to speak about it publicly, that a rabbi in Shul had to say, right. like, family purity is the cornerstone of Jewish life. Correct. That's a big ask of people who found it to be really uncomfortable. Right. And that's when I think the organization began officially. It was right after that Tafshin Lamed Vav Farbringen that the mikvah that organized an organization began. It was called Mr. Tarzar It was led by Rebbe Tadalta and Mr. Sarchi, as I said, who's still at the head today. And it was focused primarily on the written materials. I want to go back to some of those written materials because I think that some of the direction that the Rebbe gave us for those written materials are still applicable today, are just interesting. Every time something written was made by any of the Rebbe's organizations, it was submitted to the Rebbe for approval. Mm. So it wasn't that the Rebbe said, oh, you need to know, by the way, do it this way and this way. It was, you know, the woman did it as they felt was correct. They submitted it. And then based on the feedback that was given back to them, maybe a slight mark, a slight correction, a slight note scribbled in the margins, we then have lessons that we still try to our best to follow today. So some of those were interesting, like a graphic shouldn't have black or red when we're referring to this Mm. mitzvah. The Rebbe wanted it to... You know, so interesting. It is so interesting. Someone's like, well, what do you mean? Black is text. Black is text is fine. Sometimes we do a black and white image right now if it's the way we're printing. But the Rebbe didn't want it to be like black, red, heavy. It was more, one can deduce, I can think, I don't know. You know, someone said, oh, red is the color of nida, of blood. So it should be something different. But I, I don't know that for sure. Like, that's just what we think. But we know, we we are careful. We don't use black or red. By extension, because we don't use red, we also don't use like a pink that's very much like red. But we can use softer pinks, peaches, blues, greens. So there's that. But like, there's also something witchy about like <laughs> black and red. And I think that so much of the connotation around mikvah is that like, you know, dirtiness and filth that like the rabbit probably didn't even right. want to go there. Right, but like black and those red. Those are all deductions. We don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We just but, know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's just interesting, right? No black or red. But like, I like that black and red were banned. <laughs> <laughs> also to use clean language, to use Lashanaki, which means the Lashan of the Torah when we refer to these topics on public written publications. So obviously if a college teacher is teaching her college, she should use correct anatomical terms. And maybe parents need to say that to their children as well. But in written publication and print form that's being out to the public, it's always going to be written euphemistically as one of the Rebbe Saras on one of the brochures. The details, which word was it? Which word was replaced? I don't know. But it's it's not just like, oh, it's your opinion versus my opinion. We know that as an organization, that was one of the mandates the Rebbe gave to have clean language. What type of brochure? There was a brochure for women post-menopause to go to mikvah for the first time. There were brochures about the Mifta Tars and how to go to mikvah, mm. things like that. Okay. Then 
Another interesting one was about teaching halacha in full, even if someone is going to be starting at a more basic level. So that's an interesting thing to know. And it's something that like when you teach the mitzvah to someone, you don't want to be scaring them off. But the other hand, unlike Shabbos or kosher, that someone can like begin with lighting candles, but they know what the full spectrum of observance is because they see you. If someone, when they're learning about mikvah, doesn't know that there's more to know, they're never going to see you, their rebbitzin, in the position of going to mikvah or preparing for mikvah. So if you don't teach them that, they won't even know that there's something else to know. I've heard stories of someone, you know, becoming more observant over time and then suddenly realizing that there's much more. And they said, I can't believe I've been observant for all these years and I, I was doing the bare basics. So it doesn't mean that anyone observing this mitzvah for the first time needs to be doing it at a 100% level, there's still the element of it's not all or nothing like every other mitzvah in Torah. But when we teach it, it's more like we're going to begin with these things because we're starting out. But you should know that there is more. I'm going to say a few examples of more. And when you're ready to do more, let's reach out or tell them what the full thing is, like depending on the person. But the point was to let them know what the full observance is, not for you to be deciding for them how extensive their observance is going to be. Because mm. there isn't that chance to catch up later. Like, they're not going to find out later. Yeah. And I'm also just thinking that part of the Mikvah Revolution is making these resources accessible to people. So, if someone just knows that there's more to the story and then they want to grow in that area, they could find those resources online. It's no longer like, who do I ask? Like, I can't approach anyone about this. Right. No, there's a lot of resources online where things are explicitly shared and you can find exact resources about what to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. But what I said, when this was given over in the 1970s and 80s, it wasn't. It wasn't like that. Right. Right. So that's one of the things, though, that we're still careful about when we teach. But you're right. Today, if you go to mikvah.org, there's articles, there's a slideshow, there's a million reviews. I mean, you can get the full extent. I wouldn't replace it if someone's starting mikvah, that they still should get a one-on-one education with a teacher. But absolutely, the information is out there. Yeah, I get that. Something that I'm thinking about in terms of this is the trust that Hashem put in women to maintain one of the most important parts of Jewish life. The fact that the mitzvah of Tars Mishpacha is fully within the jurisdiction of the woman of the home, and it's not something that is overseen by anyone because it is so personal and done in the private sphere of the home. Just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Like the fact that this is the mitzvah of a woman, the fact that not only is this the mitzvah of a woman, but that the Rebbe really put the directive of sharing and spreading this mitzvah into the hands of women too. Like even when you mentioned the rabbi sharing it, he was like, the sisterhoods should make sure that their rabbis talk about this publicly, that women should adopt this passion and this connection and this commitment to this mitzvah because we are the ones that ensure that it happens and nobody else can. Right. Absolutely. Like I was saying before that one of the reasons why you have to teach the mitzvah in full is because it's never going to be seen by someone else. The observance is completely private, right? A woman is trusted with this core responsibility, right? And I think that for a woman to be able to find that passion, she needs to first of all deeply believe it, understand how this is the cornerstone of Judaism. When the Rebbe first mentioned it, as I told you before, it was related to Kashrus, 
it was this final stepping of Geula. It was like the health of my child. And we know as mothers, we will do anything for the physical health of our children. So understanding that this mitzvah is the spiritual health of our children and the spiritual health of our marriage, because mikvah and mishpacha is relevant and matters well beyond child rearing years, even when you're pregnant and you're not trying to get pregnant, even if someone is going through fertility issues. And I, I want to just take a moment and give a bracha that anyone who is struggling to have children, that they should be blessed with Zarachai Vikayama. Amen. So it's not just connected to children and the spiritual health of children, but it's the spiritual health of our children and our marriage. And so that's why it becomes something so deeply important to women. But it doesn't take away from the fact that sometimes it can be hard. It can be hard, some of the details of it. It can be stressful. There's a lot of details in preparing. There's time for someone who struggles with executive functioning and remembering to do the examinations at specific times. There might be a lot of things that could be stressful. So that's why I think that because it's, like you said, it's given to the woman, so important. We understand that it's the cornerstone of Judaism. We understand that it's the spiritual health of our marriage and for our children. So we need to make sure we find passion in it. If we don't have it, we got to go find that passion. We need to find the inspiration because we want it to be joyful. You know, this is the human and holy podcast, right? It can't just be this holy experience. It's got to be a human experience. We got to make sure that we're actually enjoying the experience. If we can't enjoy the experience, if we can, best is a joyful approach to it, but at least definitely not a resentful approach or a difficult approach. So I want to ask you, because there are so many people who can get behind the inspiration of the mitzvah, who actually really connect to the idea of immersion, of the separation and coming back together, and all of the theoretical ideas, and even of actually doing them. But then when it comes to all the nitty gritty details and remembering to do everything and being on top of everything, it can be a real job to maintain. So just because you are so immersed in this world of sharing these ideas with women and interviewing people on these topics. I'm wondering what advice would you give for addressing the actual daily struggle of carrying out the mitzvah to the extent that you want to, and not necessarily about the inspiration of the mitzvah, but the actual practicality of executing it in its, you know, halachic application. Well, first of all, I want to just point out that, you know, you're right. We can get inspired and be joyful about it, but we still have to remember all those details. So number one is to review. The Rebbe talked about reviewing once a year. And I think for a lot of women, they forget, like it's hard or you don't even realize a year passed since you last reviewed. Yeah, once a year is often. Yeah. <laughs> but the good news is that there's plenty of resources for you to review. It doesn't I mean it's great if you can be in person with a teacher and review as part of a community six-week series, for example. That's great. But if you can't fit that in, there are lots of other options. We have a slideshow. We have a Kahoot game. We have at least three or four rounds of the full halacha review on podcast. There's a lot of options to review. And the reason why all those things are there is because for many, 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 many years, mikvah.org did have twice a year an annual review series in Crown Heights. It was more like print and brochure media were for the outside world, for the world globally, and all the events happened locally because events mm. were local. Now- right. <laughs> Back then, do you remember that yeah, time exactly. in the world? <laughs> so now that's what's like, you know, great is that events are no longer local and therefore they're available to anyone, anywhere you can review. So absolutely, joy and inspiration isn't enough. We have to actually go and review 
the halachas. We have to review the details because we could forget them. You know, someone has an extended period of time where they're not nida for a variety of different circumstances. It's going to be hard to remember those details later. Or even if someone is nida every single month for years on end, if the last time they reviewed it was five, six, seven, eight years ago, or when they were a kala and completely distracted preparing for a wedding, they could have missed crucial details that they didn't even realize. So number one, yes, we need to review the halachas in order to be able to go through those details. But then there's more than that, because like you said, some people might really struggle with some of the details for a variety of reasons. Women can have, you know, standing issues. There can be lots of reasons why someone might struggle with the details that become so stressful. I have to go mail a shayla. There's things that like can make it complicated. Mm -hmm. What I find so human about the Rebbe encouraging us to do halachic reviews annually is that what I think it's an invitation to do is to grow in this area, because I like to find my comfort zone in every mitzvah, like where I'm holding. And the idea that in such a central mitzvah, I could be constantly integrating new things and constantly fluctuating. And that maybe something that was a struggle I can now take on or vice versa leaves room for the natural human evolution. And if I'm constantly re-examining the actual halacha, then I could also re-examine how I interact with it and grow. Right. You know, it's actually what you said brought up something for me that I remember last year I was struggling with like a huge decision, okay? And one of the people I was speaking to advising me in this was like, you don't need to see this as a forever decision. Mm. This is your decision for now. And in four months from now, you can reevaluate and you can change the decision. And it took a load off of me that, okay, the decision we're making right now is definitely what's important and best for right now. And it's not forever. So what you're saying as well is like, okay, someone maybe starts off their marriage or at a certain point in their life, they've chosen that you said they're a comfortable medium in this mitzvah. But by at least making that effort to review once a year, they're put in the position to, again, choose annually. Mm -hmm. Like maybe I wasn't ready last year, but now I can incorporate it. Also, the Rebbe spoke numerous times. There's many letters of people who were struggling with different things. And the Rebbe said, you know, just as we commonly say, check your mezuzahs and check your tefillin and things like that, the Rebbe said, review the laws of Taras Meshbacha or increase in Taras Meshbacha. Mm, interesting. So there is sometimes where, you know, you're looking for a vessel for blessing. It doesn't mean that it's this magic cure-all. Mikvah at the end of the day is a chayk. That means it's a law that we don't 100% understand its reasons. And it's not mm-hmm. A plus B equals C. But it's a vessel for blessing. It's the spiritual health of our marriage and children, as I said before. And the Rebbe did respond to people saying, review the laws of Taras Meshbacha. I remember hearing actually a story where someone said that when they got that message, they were like almost insulted. Like, I keep mikvah. I keep Taras Meshbacha. What does that mean? But they reviewed the laws with someone and they realized there was something like vitally important they were missing. You know, common errors that people end up in mikvah on the wrong day. And when she took the time to review the law, she realized that it doesn't mean the Rebbe knew what she didn't do. It was more like Mm -hmm. a a feeling of the spiritual health in this area is missing. Yeah. It's like you do your annual checkup. (laughs) It's like you do your annual physical. And if you see how important mikvah is, then I can see the value of doing that for this mitzvah. An annual physical for mikvah. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) So if you're struggling, I think it's important to find resources to enhance this mitzvah. You know, if someone says preparing for Shabbos is so hard or my Fridays are so stressful, I have to keep the kids out of the kitchen and I have so many things to do. As a friend, we would walk them through that and say like, are you making like 30 salads and seven dips? 
Could we cut it down to one salad and two dips? <laughs> because right, because it's not necessary, right? Mm. So I don't want to give like tips about this is how you're going to make your mikvah preparation less stressful because I feel like it's incredibly personal about what someone finds stressful. What I'm finding stressful might not be stressful for you. But I just think I'll give some examples of what I mean. And they can be like, okay, hmm, how can I relate that to myself? Like yeah. if someone says that, you know, mikvah is just like an exhausting day. I have so many responsibilities that day. So it's maybe a time to hire a babysitter for a few hours. So you have time alone to focus on yourself. Maybe someone just needs a nap so that they can then be up. And, you know, maybe someone goes to bed every night at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. They're early to bed. And then so mikvah night ends up being stressful. It's like late and especially in the summer months, so maybe take a nap right. that day. Maybe make something related to mikvah be pampering for you. Having a spa day during your seven white days, something that you look forward to. There's many different ways. And then there's actual observance of the mitzvah. If something is particularly stressful, halacha is meant to work with you. So speak to the rav. And it's like, oh, I'm going to speak to rabbi about my body, but it's not like that. It's the spiritual doctor. You speak mm-hmm. to the, the Rav because there is room within Halakha for different nuances or tweaks for someone's individual marriage or someone's individual circumstances. So the point is that Tars Meshbacha is supposed to bring joy and unity to your marriage. And I want to caution that. I don't mean like, be true to yourself. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. Because in today's day and age, and I'm talking to myself as well, you know, it's like, okay, what can I handle? What's going to be feel like right to me? But mm. often what feels right to me is because I'm just looking at only my human self, my nefesh Bahamas, my animal soul. And I don't want to just be catering to that part of me because my true part of me is my godly soul, the holy part of me. So my truest self is my neshama. It wants a relationship with Hashem. It wants a relationship with my creator. It wants to follow the mitzvahs as he gave them to us. So as I said, mitzvah is a chayk. Not all the details are going to be understood, but I know that's what's best for my truest self. I want to bring my animal soul along with me. I want the animal soul to experience the joy in it, but I can't cater just to that. So it's not like, it doesn't feel right to me, I'm going to drop it. It's more like, what can I do to make this be a joyful experience mm. for my animal soul as well? What can I do? Can I take a nap? Can I have a spa day? Can I do something? You know, in Yudhita's Kiss Slave of Lamites, so it's a few years later, after the Rebbe talked about it not being private, the Rebbe addressed this mitzvah again. And the Rebbe said, There are those who claim that this mitzvah is about distance and separation. But you should know that humans are kind only because Hashem is kind. And Hashem gave us these laws. Therefore, it is the ultimate kindness and love and mercy on Hashem's part that the love and joy that comes between the husband and wife after a period of separation is much greater as a result of the time of distance. And I'm quoting it because I feel like it's the Rebbe's words. I I didn't want to do it separately. But the Rebbe said there, like, even if you feel like mikvah is causing separation for you, it's distance. The Rebbe said it's not because we need to understand Hashem. Hashem is the kel rachum v'chanun. If Hashem is giving us these laws, it's what's the kindest, most merciful thing for our marriage. And that's one element of it. And then the Rebbe also said in the same sicha that there are those who are criticizing that public funds are being used for mikvahs. And they're saying the money should really? be used. <laughs> yeah. There are those who are... I- <laughs> This is ancient news. <laughs> ancient news. You know, there are those who are saying the money needs to be used for families who are struggling with their food. Why are we using it for fancy McVice? Mm, interesting. <laughs> but the Rebbe said, even if you consider mikvah to be something that is only for women at a particular stage of life, you say, you know, like, we're looking at the big needs of the Jewish people, and the mikvah is only for women between 20 and 60, and therefore we need to use our money for, like, 
the three-year-old starving children and the elderly. Like, why are we using public funds for a beautiful mikvah? But the Rebbe said, we need to understand that the mikvah is not just for the woman of a certain age. It is for everybody because we cannot underestimate its importance and its impact on every child and our future grandchildren through all the generations. So it's important mm-hmm. that, yes, we use public funds for mikvahs. And it's not just like, okay, we're going to use public funds for mikvahs, but we're going to skimp. The Rebbe said there, it should be beautiful and kosher mikvahs. And I, I reflect on it. It's like, yes, because we need to have that passion in this mitzvah. Mm-hmm. It needs to be a beautiful and pleasant experience. A woman should feel happy to go. So yes, we use public funds. We raise money, lots of money. I mean, beautiful McVeigh's today can cost a lot of money. Millions of dollars. (laughs) Millions of dollars. But it's important because we aren't in Russia anymore and we're not going to be able to go to some hole in the ground somewhere. Our McVeigh's can be beautiful and pristine and they're 100% clean and hygienic. The mitzvahs should be pleasant. That's the bottom line. Like the Rebbe said this in Lama Test, that's in 1979. That's many years ago. That there are those criticizing right. public funds for mikvah, and we should know, no, because it's so important. It needs to be done it's that so way. It's so important. Well, that makes me think that even though that line of thinking of like, you know, we want to bring our Nefesh Bahamas along, but this is our godly soul's desire to be connected to the mitzvah in the purest way. The Rebbe is saying that it was important to pour precious funds, like this is charity funds, into making the most physically gorgeous mikvah. Yeah. So that a woman will physically enjoy it makes me think that all the human struggles that someone has with mikvah, some could be solved by being more inspired, but a lot of them could be solved by practically figuring out how to make it more practically enjoyable. Like if a woman is staining, she needs to figure out like a practical solution that isn't just like, okay, I'm going to be really inspired. Or if a woman feels extreme distance during the time of separation, even knowing that this is what the Torah wants, there's a way to make that separation, not feel like such a time of distance. Like there's so many practical ways to enhance the mitzvah. I think for women, some of the work comes in being spiritually inspired by it. And a lot of the work comes into being committed to making it pleasant, figuring out a solution so that it doesn't have to be a difficult struggle. And like, there's this huge push and pull because if it's part of your life, it has to be something that you look forward to. And I don't think it's sustainable for us to be like wrestling with every detail every single month. Right. Absolutely. And that's why I had said, like there are resources. Just, you know, you yeah. mentioned staining a couple of times. So there's an organization called Taharenu that does troubleshoot common causes for staining. And there are some solutions to it. Sometimes it could be something very simple that can help someone out or all those right. practical ideas. It's, there are, we have a lot of podcasts that the college teachers address Q and A's and they, mm-hmm. they have, their own examples for practical ways of, you know, th- ways to connect to your husband during times of Nida, you know, like you had said, if someone feels that constant push and pull. But absolutely, I agree with you 100% that we see how the Rebbe many, many years ago is ensuring yeah. that we make the Nefesh of Bahamas, make that animal soul be happy with this mitzvah. We absolutely need to make sure that we're doing so as well. Yeah. I want to bring one more story in. Again, <laughs> it's not something I have all the details and forgive me for that, but I believe it was the Rebbe Rashab came once to the mikvah, I think it was in Rostov, and the caretaker, he didn't realize that the Rebbe was going to be coming right then. And usually when the Rebbe came, he would make sure it's like super clean. And he came and it, I guess it was by surprise or it was on short notice. And there were a couple hairs floating in the mikvah. Wow. And the guy said, I'm so sorry. Like the Rebbe, he was like so apologetic. And the Rebbe was said, I'm okay with these couple hairs. It's okay. But a woman who comes would not be okay with this. So it's vitally important that every day this mikvah is pristinely clean. 
basically, oh. not just for me, the Rebbe, that's why it needs to be clean. The woman, they're the ones who this is the mitzvah teraisa. That's who it's important to be 100% wow. clean for. Wow, that is such a powerful story. Doesn't that show you how much the Rebbe valued the pleasant experience Absolutely. of going to mikvah, that it should be enjoyable, that a woman should look forward to it? Because that's the only way for us to be able to be so committed to it, as if it's not the only way. Like, obviously... Right, it's not the only way, because we're not going to discount, as I said, we're not going to discount right. in, like... In Russia. In Russia, that they went to freezing holes, or they had to go to the sea, or they had to go through extenuating circumstances, but that's not ideal. That was their lifestyle then in general. So it was like commensurate with what their lifestyle was versus now. It was still self-sacrificed. Well, let's not, no, let's not for, sure, that. for sure. It was, for sure. I mean, they had to go take t- a 10-hour train to Moscow and go into a freezing no. mikvah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but. And there are the modern day self-sacrifices, women who are in shulchas or women who aren't on shulchas, but just live in places that they don't have access to a mikvah or the only mikvah that's available is not this like gorgeous state-of-the-art mikvah or for whatever reason, they don't have the support that they need, et cetera. So that sacrifice still exists within the mitzvah, but as much as possible, like the fact that the Rebbe cared about a few hairs floating in the mikvah because it might bother a woman who is coming to immerse is tremendous to me. Right. It's true. And so when it comes today, and you know, we, like you said, there's so much self-sacrifice, our day self-sacrifice, whether it's because we have to travel far or because the mikvah locally isn't as beautiful as it is in some other places, or yeah. maybe we don't love the attendant as much as we've heard other attendants are really nice, or the circumstances in our life or in our marriage are making it difficult for us to do that, remembering that it's this deep bond with Hashem when we do this mitzvah can help us maybe get into that better space to then think of practical ways to make it as easy as possible. But sometimes it's just not. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it requires a 30-minute walk on a Friday night and it's not such great weather. We always have to be to rub if we get into a situation where we feel like it's beyond our capabilities. But when it's in our capabilities to like sometimes to push ourselves, there's always that element of like, let's push ourselves, but not too far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like right so that's why we have mashpias that's why we have mentors that's why we have rabbanim to help you know make sure we're calibrated about yeah how far to push how much to say no this is this yeah. is, is going to be too much for us but i think it's also important to note tanya that being a light for taras mashbacha is not just like oh you know chasi you ended up working at mikvah.org you're very passionate about this mitzvah you could talk about it but me, I'm just a regular person, like at home. Like I don't need to talk about this. All of us need to be to make the world more aware of this beautiful mitzvah. Like maybe you have a friend who's struggling, and you can help her. Like all these examples that we had said, I think that we do need to remember that mikvah is private. We don't need to tell our friend tonight's mikvah night, unless there's a specific reason why she needed to know because she's babysitting your children or she was in your house as a guest and kind of need her cooperation. But otherwise, it is private. But sometimes as women, we do talk sometimes about our struggles. And if we're in a position where we can help someone else, it doesn't have to be just the community leaders. In Yudzayin Sivan Tafshin Mem, it was one of the sikhas I had referenced earlier, where the Rebbe talked about it needing to be name dropped all the time. The Rebbe also said, desperate times calls for desperate measures and that we must you know, name drop this all the time, right? This is what's interesting. The next day, Rabbi Chadakov called the women who were running the mikvah.org organization and said, the Rebbe wants to know, it's been 12 hours since the Fabregan. What have you done so far for this mitzvah? And Rav Chadakov's message also was like, you can't wait for Tzach, you know, some of the men's organizations. Don't wait for Tzach to be taking care of this for you. This is yours. It's the woman's responsibility to ensure that the rabbis are talking about this publicly. It's the woman's responsibility to make sure that this mitzvah is getting spread out. So if you're here also, like the Rebbe said, 
12 hours later, what are you doing? What have you done so far? We can't wait for only those in leadership to help women be aware. You know, obviously, if someone needs to be educated in mikvah observance for the first time, we should leave that education to those who are educated to do it. We, we do have a college teacher training program that has over 200 teachers certified. And it's a rigorous program that takes over a year and this continuing education. So there's plenty to learn in like teaching someone the halachas properly. I'm not saying that everyone should go run and teach, but troubleshooting or talking about it or inspiring each other, every single person can do that. Mentioning the mitzvah to our neighbors, talking about it in our own circles. That's something each of us can do and we can't wait. I mean, the Rebbe said, what do you do in the past 12 hours? So that's a call to action because it's so incredibly fundamental to bring you the gula and it needs to happen now. We don't have time to wait. We want this mitzvah to spread to every corner of the globe. Oh, something that just comes to mind is the fact that so much of empowerment in the world seems to be performative. But this empowerment of women to really reframe how they see the mitzvah, to see it as something that we share as a sisterhood. It's the foundation of each individual home, each individual family. It's the foundation of the Jewish people. And as a result, the Rebbe is empowering us to really see it that way. And as a result, not to be ashamed to openly speak about it, to speak about it, like you said, even between friends, discussing our struggles, helping people make it a more useful mitzvah, inspiring other people. If this is a mitzvah that you feel connected to, Share that with even, like you said, just your friend. You don't have to work for mikvah.org in order to believe in the power of this central mitzvah that was entrusted to women, which is like really deeply empowering. Right, right. I want to just bring up again, we know we talked a few times about it being private, but not secret, right? That when we're talking with our friends, like I just feel like at one point, like, yes, we should inspire our friends. We should talk about, you know, some common struggles and help each other. But what I find that the same thing that I know college teachers are careful to do with their students but something that we also, as friends, when we're talking with each other, is that we can encourage each other without being personally specific or invading the privacy of our own marriages with us and our husbands. So as I said before, you know, talking about tonight I'm going to the mikvah, no, but once I went to the mikvah and this happened when it's something far in the past or I've heard of people who have gone to the mikvah and this and this happened and this is what they did to make it better is a way that you can depersonalize it a little bit because it is something that we do want to keep private. And like it is something like, oh, let's discuss, you know, how me and my husband interact during Nida and you discuss how you and your husband interact during Nida. That would already cross the bounds of privacy in this mitzvah. So I think it's a delicate balance and I think that women have intuitive wisdom. And if we take a moment to just think about it and say, yes, I want to keep the privacy of my marriage sacred. I think everyone can do it. It's not like, oh, here's the rules. This is what you say. This yeah. is what you don't. It's more, right. let's remember it is private, but we also want to inspire and share with each other. Because like you said, we can help. We don't have to be in the public role to do this. This is something that everyone can do. That was the Rebbe's call to action. So let's do it. Yeah, I think that people intuitively know how to respect the human boundaries of their marriage, but a lot of people feel programmed to not even speak about the spiritual element of it or the practical details of the halacha, and that makes it feel like something that women are really alienated in. Like if a woman feels like all the details of the halacha that are surrounding actually going to the mikvah or counting or all those things or something like she's the only person in the world who is doing it. <laughs> it's hard to find connection when someone is struggling in those areas. But I think part of what the rubber was trying to do was reframe how we look at it. Like it's those elements of it are actually not something that are not really something between you and your husband. They're something that are between you and God. So we should be able to, and not we should be able to, but we must speak about it and not be ashamed about it between our 
sisterhood because that is the way that each of us can find inspiration, guidance, et cetera. The same way we do with any other struggle in our Yiddishkeit that's between us and God is by having connection with other people and getting advice and hearing stories, et cetera. And also knowing that there are so many resources for help. Like right. it used to be that maybe someone was staining for months on end and didn't realize that there might be an appropriate on her cervix for something very specific mm. as an example. But we have yeah. resources now. And I'm obviously not going to be able to bring up every example into the sun now, but we have dozens of podcasts on this. I mean, we have, you know, from pelvic floor therapists and from the Bodeket and from the college teachers where there's, and from Taha Renu, like there's so much information that when someone's going through struggles in those practical details, you know, it's like we can share about it with our friends. We can talk about it with our friends I and mean, give them some pointers that we heard. But we also could direct them to the fact that there is so much resources online that they can go look and empower themselves to take care of these things. So I think at the end of the day, it's like you said, remembering we can help support each other. We don't need to wait for only those who are super passionate to do this. We can find that passion because we want to also. And I started at the very beginning saying how the, one of the first sikhs that ever talked about Tars Meshbachal publicly was saying how it's connected to the gula. That it's the final stepping stone for bringing the gula is having, ensuring that our families are bigdusha vitara. Like the fact that our families are spiritually healthy, joyful marriages is the final stepping stone for gula. So let's inspire ourselves. Let's inspire our own observance. Let's inspire those around us. Yeah. There's nothing more inspiring than hearing someone's joy and passion for a mitzvah. So <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Tanya. My pleasure. Elokai zakinina Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Hasidus into every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>